Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Coming this summer to a screen near you. The International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its 2021 annual international conference jointly with Infosec, Infocult of Montreal and the Association Québécoise Plaidoyer Victime, July 1st through 3rd, 2021. ICSA's annual conference draws former group members, families, helping professionals, researchers, lawyers, educators, and the general public from around the world. This year's event will have four simultaneous tracks, including one in French, and workshops available. Selected sessions will also be translated in French and English. There will be over 50 presentations to choose from. Miss a session? Not a problem. This will be the first conference where almost all of the presentations will be available to registrants for up to 30 days after the event. This year's event includes some familiar faces and some first-time presenters at an ICSA conference. We are also excited to feature a number of French speakers. Some of the presentations include Alice's Mushrooms, A Culture and QAnon, Insights After Hundreds of Cult Member Interventions Since 1980 by Joseph Zimhart, Scientology's Legal System by Phil Lord, Lived Experiences of Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual Former Cult Members, Counseling Implications by Cindy Matthews, and many, many more subjects. This conference will also feature the Phoenix Project, free and open to all. This program reveals the realities of an individual's cult experience through creative works of art, writing, and performance. The cost for the conference in US dollars. For regular registration, 150. For student registration, 80. And financial assistance is available. To sign up for our upcoming ICSA International Conference, The Phoenix Project, and more, visit icsahome.com slash events slash conference annual. We hope to see you at the event. I want to thank everybody for their continued support of this show. This has been a labor of love for myself and for my team. And as you know, I pay for it out of pocket. And I hope to be able to keep it going as long as I can. I wouldn't be able to do it without your support, without people writing in their comments of support, without checking out the episodes, passing them on to other people, and developing a really solid, big audience for each episode. And thank you to all of you. And I'm so glad it's been interesting and helpful for so many. I want to be able to do a special shout out for two different groups of people today. One is for the new patrons, the ones who are giving $10 or more, and some giving a lot more, and some also who have moved up a tier. So thank you to Sarah and to Kikesi who moved up a tier by increasing her support. Stephanie, Nicholas, Renee, and Leanne, I am so happy that you've joined the party, so to speak, and are able to be able to keep it going for all the listeners and all the people it seems to be helping, which is quite gratifying. And to the people who have been sustaining members and people I want to be able to thank for your continued support over the long term. For Holly, David, Donna, Michael, Zofia, Katrina, Peter and Cynthia, Camus, 
and Maureen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I truly, as I've said before, but I mean it 100%, could not do it without all of you. Thank you so much. On today's show, we have Jonathan Hirsch, who's going to be talking about his family's journey, kind of from one cult into another, very different groups, very different people at the helm of each group, which of course then makes them very different groups. But still, the kinds of groups that a lot of people who have left have called a cult. And so how does it happen that you go from one to the next? And how does that impact the child raised going from one group to the next? Jonathan is an independent producer, reporter, and sound designer. He has produced hundreds of long-form audio works for NPR, Vox, NBC, Fusion Media Group, and many others. He is a recipient of the Green Eyeshade, the Edward R. Murrow and DuPont Awards, and his seven-part documentary podcast series, Dear Franklin Jones, debuted number one on the iTunes podcast charts. In April of 2018, Jonathan launched Neon Hum Media, an L.A.-based podcast production company specializing in narrative-driven, high-production-value, audio-first documentaries, talk shows, and partner content. And while he is very skilled and quite a professional in this field, He's going to be speaking today on a very personal level. Here's Jonathan now. I am very excited to have Jonathan on the show today to talk about something, well, someone who is a fascinating character who I have heard about, whose former followers I've worked with. It's an interesting character study, and it shows also that cultic groups can exist in so many different forms with so many different kinds of leaders. And so uh, I know I'm being circumspect, but we'll get to who we're talking about in a sec. So go ahead, Jonathan, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Jonathan Hirsch. I am the host of a new series from Neon Hum called I Am Rama. I'm a documentary audio producer. Uh, My company, Neon Hum, produces all kinds of documentary series, and this happens to be one that I am producing and reporting. Wonderful. Very good. So I am curious about your curiosity about Rama, about this man, Frederick Lenz, who went by a couple monikers, but the most famous, I guess, being Rama. So tell me what drew you to him and his psyche and his story. Well, I guess you could say, in a way, I wouldn't exist if it weren't for Rama. And I maybe don't mean that in the metaphysical way. I mean that literally. uh, My mom and my dad met in 1982 in line outside of a Rama seminar. I think he went by the name Atmananda at the time. And that's where they met. It was their sort of spiritual meet cute, if you will. And they eventually became students of Atmananda, Rama, and participated in a variety of things under that banner, including multiple meditation seminars and, and things of that nature. And then, you know, for a variety of reasons, they parted amicably from Rama's study, I guess you could say, his group, and uh, eventually became students of another spiritual group, Adi Dham, hosted or um, run by a man named Franklin Jones, um, Daft Frijan, Bubba Frijan. And I was raised in that group. A lot of people consider that group to be a cult. I have complicated feelings about that term that does and doesn't mean. It's part of what I think we explore in this series and also in another series I did about 
being raised in Franklin Jones's group called Dear Franklin Jones. It's a documentary series, a sort of audio memoir about my childhood. But I had always heard about Rama. Rama was the genesis moment of my parents' relationship. It was a period of their life that they looked back on quite fondly when I think they had pretty complicated feelings about their relationship with Adida. They saw their time with Rama as this kind of honeymoon period. And so I became really curious about who Rama was. I also was aware that in the late 1990s, he had committed suicide. And uh, my parents were pretty devastated when that happened. They were pretty sad. I think they saw their time with Rama as being on balance positive. And that's certainly raised a lot of questions for me about who, who this teacher was and what he was about. And, uh, you know, I think one thing led to another. I, I had been thinking about it for a long time. And as I started to kind of scratch the surface, what I think emerged for me was a much more complicated story uh, than I expected about Rama, about his life, about his students. Much more complicated, I should say, than the, I guess you could say, bifurcated depictions of him, both in mainstream coverage and how I would say a majority of his students felt about their experience with him. And that's what really drew my curiosity to this topic. Okay. Wow. It's very interesting. And I, I so I want to, to also, you know, hear if you want to talk about Doffrey John and Franklin Jones, you know, just that whole experience. And also, I do want to say that the term cult becomes an issue for a lot of people in a lot of situations. And, you know, when I'm working with people, I'll ask if they're okay with the word. I don't have to apply it to every situation, even if other people in the same group have had a more cultic experience or have been more devastated by what happened there, which makes it more dangerous for them. Each person's experience within a group all along the spectrum from cult to healthy is all going to be individual. And so it is, I think it's okay for you to call it what you want to call it. And also there are different definitions. I try to define what a cult is here on this show and in my work with clients, but there are different definitions. So it sort of depends what definition you're going by. The The thing that matters more to me is what the what is the impact that it had on you, either short-term or long-term. And so I'm curious about that. I think that's fair. I think that one thing that you brought up that I think is really interesting, and it tracks with my experience in Adidas group, and I think it also tracks with a number of the experiences that have been relayed to me by people who are students of Rama, which is it's your proximity and your engagement and the other things that are going on in your life will deeply impact how you experience a group like Adidas or Ramas. You know, when I was growing up, for most of my childhood, my parents were at an arm's length from Adidas. Uh, it wasn't until later on, and I get into this in Dear Franklin Jones, it wasn't until later on that they became closer to him. And I think when they became part of his sort of inner circle, or at least kind of on the periphery of that, that things became harder for them. And a great deal of the fallout that they experienced had to do with their proximity to him. And I can't say that there's a one-to-one -one with experiences that folks within Rama's group had experienced. But I definitely think that depending on who you were and what you sought to get out of a group like Rama's, the experiences were multivaried, <laughs> to say the least. I almost think that it's like, it's not so much that the story of Rama is a story of a cult, as it is almost like prismatic, right? Like for every version of Rama, there was a person and their experience. For every experience of somebody within the group, there was a different version of him. You know, some people very publicly came out and, and felt that their experience of, of being in his group was a hindrance to their life. And for others, I was really surprised to learn he almost acted as the kind of accelerant, if that makes sense. 
one thing that's kind of overlooked and that has been overlooked with time about Rama and the people who studied with him is that he he sort of anticipated a tremendous sea change shift in the economy. When people started studying with Rama and he started encouraging them to become computer programmers and the like, which is something that he did, which sort of kind of uniquely defined him as a spiritual teacher in the kind of era of charismatic spiritual teachers that emerged in the 70s and 80s with, um, you know, that many of whom presented a kind of modern westernized blending of various different spiritual traditions from Advaita Vedanta Hinduism to Mahayana Buddhism and, and so on. For each of these groups, many times the the, the teachers had this kind of charismatic new western presentation rajneesh is another example of a spiritual teacher who had a very western approach to to his teaching and we all of course know what happened there um but you know one thing that that made rama sort of unique is that he was encouraging his students to become computer programmers in the early days of like in in as early as 1984 shortly after my parents had left, but in the, in as early as 1984, he, you know, at the rise of the personal computer, there was, IBM had released its first personal computer that year. It was so early on. And the argument was, at least according to students, that being a, working in computers was a way to make an honest living without having to have a ton of interpersonal communication with other with other people, it could be kind of meditative. I don't want to mischaracterize it here. But I think the idea was, is that it was a kind of job that you could be successful at, while also kind of moonlighting as a spiritualist, that you could do your meditation practice, and it could be very demanding, and challenging. But you could also be a, you know, you could also have a day job if you didn't already have a way to make money to like have a comfortable life so that you could do this practice. So setting aside for a moment, the conversations around all of that, you know, there was there was quite a bit of controversy around that particular practice, and the and 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 it was represented in the national media on multiple occasions. But one thing that is really interesting to me is setting aside all that debate for a second. There are many students that I spoke to that are now multimillionaires, and we profile at least one of them on the series, um, like. This person very explicitly feels that their their engagement with Rama directly resulted in them becoming very, very wealthy. They never had a plan to be a computer programmer. They ended up building a software company, having it be acquired and have more money than they would ever imagine. And there's quite a few people at the end of the day, the long tail of the story of Rama is that there are a large number of people who are quite successful at this. That's really interesting to me because it also very much contradicts, if you Google Rama on YouTube or whatever, it very much contradicts the kind of like national news coverage of him from the late 80s um, and into the 90s. And so that's a thing that sort of caught my attention and sort of drew me to the story. I wanted to understand, I wanted to take as maximalist approach as I could to telling the story? How do we get to some spectrum of perspective? How do we reflect that prism? If you <laughs> Forgive me the new age metaphor here, but how would you like, you know, reflect that prism in the narrative of the life of this person? Right, right. I think it's good to be able to do that. So it has different dimension to it. I think he was a lot of different things. He seemed to have a lot of interests and he was also very bright. And he had a way of kind of looking into the future. I don't mean that psychically, but just sort of seeing where things were going to be going. And that is very smart. I know someone who was in his computer class who said that that he worked them pretty hard. I mean, that they had to work very hard and he really pushed them and they worked long hours. And some people just had to drop out. It was just way too much and too taxing on their system. But he had this drive that was intense. And he, I think he pushed that on people. I was going to also say something about him that I remember learning a lot before learning about Rama, learning about uh, Sri Chinmoy, his guru. And Sri Chinmoy is an interesting person also having classes that he taught at the UN building in New York. And, you know, that 
I, I teach a lot about, about how sometimes there is this notion of um, validation and authenticity when you are teaching something at a university or at the UN or somewhere that promotes a certain kind of feeling of trust. You know, he's uh, not, he's not well psychologically, Shri And he also did something that I thought was very interesting. And it was, it, sometimes things are just so transparent in people's techniques where he called his followers, the, the adults who were his followers, boys and girls. And they weren't adults, even though they were adults, but they weren't adults. And that he then could be the parent. He could be the only adult in the room. And that there was also uh, something about how one of his followers was telling me that if you did a lot for him or if you did good PR for him or if you brought in new members or if you helped to keep the location where the courses were being given, um, if you helped to secure it for a longer period of time, you got to sit closer to him. And when you're talking about the proximity, that not only do people have a different experience within a cult when they are either farther away from the leader or closer, but that sometimes that closeness is a construct as a reward or a punishment. Access, in other words. Definitely. Yeah. So it's interesting just seeing sort of the multi-generational guru effect here from one to the next to the next and what they learn from each other. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that much about the story of Chinmoy. So I didn't know the story that you just told there. I will say that also Chinmoy, from some of the folks I spoke to, I spoke to a a new religions professor at the University of Virginia named Matt Hedstrom, who studies Chinmoy. And one of the things that he pointed out was that Chinmoy was also part of this era of spirit, like Eastern spiritual teachers um, or Eastern gurus. I guess in Chinmoy's case, he did define himself as a guru who they were almost exercising a certain kind of religious diplomacy. So the UN is an excellent example there. Um, It became a way to share cultural learnings, right? So there was like, there was some broader agendas there around kind of melding Eastern and Western cultural belief systems. I think we can say safely that the era of these teachers in the 70s and 80s who arrived to the waiting white boomer middle-class followers who affixed themselves to these teachers, the two, the teacher and the students, sort of did so at their own peril. Because I think there are a lot of cultural misalignments between the way that like the guru relationship in India and in the East was seen, um, how Zen masters and spiritual teachers in various different forms of traditional Buddhism related to their students in in those cultures that don't really ally with the way that American culture operates. And again, to be clear, I'm not making concessions for for behavior. I'm just pointing out the problematics of that particular dynamic and how it played out. I like to refer to that era as the era of crazy wise guys because there was this kind of personability about them, right? That made them accessible to, you know, spiritual aspirants, seekers like my parents. There was also this kind of argument that was being made that behavior is a form of teaching, right? Like the behavior of of the guru or the teacher is an instruction to the student. In more formal environments, like in Chan Buddhism and traditional Chinese Zen Buddhism and in Japan, a lot of this stuff was happening in monasteries, right? Like a lot of this stuff was happening in these much more strict environments with a different set of cultural norms. So imagine, you know, that coming from somebody with 99 Rolls Royces or whatever, or leather jackets and a rock band. It's a, it's an odd fusion of cultural dynamics that didn't always play out well. So I do think that there is a tremendous opportunity for misunderstanding that can happen because of that. So I do think that's part of it too. Okay. And you were also saying that with Rama, it's a much more complicated story than it's been depicted. And, you know, and I think that's usually going to be the case with the media. I mean, they're going to pick the things that kind of are the most titillating or the most attention grabbing. 
but not necessarily the more important parts. I do know that, you know, he, I still remember the ads for his. The ads really stuck out to people. You mean the ones with the resumes of the past lives? Yeah. Yeah. that. I mean, that's what got my parents into it. And many of the students I talked to, that was what drew them to it. And I, and I think also with, he had kind of a loose curly, like kind of, I don't know how to describe his hair. It was like big and curly. Yeah. Big had a curly hair. He also had a professional Hollywood celebrity photographer do do his headshots. Uh, right. Exactly. So I remember seeing his ad. I have it somewhere. I think it's in my office. And I use that ad in my head when people say, how do you know that someone is legit? And I said, well, this isn't necessarily proof one way or another, but you want to be a little circumspect uh, or a little suspicious when someone is saying that they're spiritual, but they're also backlit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, the backlighting might be an issue. Understood. Yeah. So he had a glow, he had a halo that was done by lighting, you know, so you're thinking that's really not very spiritual. So tell me about the more complicated parts that I know we've already started talking about that, but anything else? We were getting into some of it, right? That like, if you think about what his appeal was, here's this guy in a rock band with music videos, who's taking people out to steak dinners, who is like funny. He's legitimately got some good dad jokes. And I appreciated some of it. And he also wasn't a kind of, you know, robes and tea sort of Buddhist, right? Like he presented this idea that you could make money in a burgeoning industry while also being a student, that the practice, in fact, was a form of, you know, capitalism, which is very odd to me being raised by a couple of hippies who weren't really like I feel like no disrespect to mom and dad but I feel like if they had stuck around for the computer programming bit they wouldn't have lasted very long you know um and then and then also I don't know if students would would find this to be a fair characterization but I do think there was like this element of a like a chase almost do you know what I mean he moved constantly from one place to the next um, students, if they could afford to, would follow him. If they couldn't, they didn't. And, you know, that made it hard for some people. And certainly those stories came to light as well over the years. When articles and news features started emerging about him by the late 80s and on through sort of shortly until his death, I think in hindsight, it's hard to see where the two sides meet each other. And that was really the mission of this series was to understand the spectrum of perspective on this man. Because if you talk to many of the students, I think they felt like they were under attack, that they were involved with somebody who they could scarcely keep up with, right? Um, that seems very different than the sort of quote unquote cults that we've come to know. There was very few scenarios in which people were actually physically or economically inhibited from leaving the group. And oftentimes it was hard to stay. And that's its own sort of psychological dilemma. And that definitely is something we get into that there were students who, or people who were aspiring to be students who sort of spun out in an effort to try to be a student of Rama's. And while all the while in the news, he's being seen and portrayed, as you know, somebody who manipulates his followers, exercises mind control, is taking their money against their will, these kinds of things. And so it's so hard when you see these two vastly different versions of the story. And so to me, that's kind of where the interesting pieces lie and sort of understanding how, how Rama's group differed from other groups of that era and also what the sort of unique set of circumstances were around his around his life and the way that he saw himself perceived in the press and how the press responded to him. Right. I'm wondering, because of the story of Rama's death, you know, that for some people, it was not at all a healthy experience to be with him. And for others, as you're saying, it helped to fortify them financially forever. We talked to both, to be clear. I think what's unique about I Am Rama as a series is that we, over time, were able to build the trust of 
students of Rama who felt like the experience was a positive one because so many of them have never spoken about it, except within their sort of circles of support for one another. And so the story features, and I was very upfront with everyone um, when we began this process that like our intent was to tell the totality of the story. So that was inclusive of people who legitimately felt like it was a good experience, but we absolutely talk to people who do not feel that way. And also people who, you know, family members of people, you know, to, to our earlier discussion, whose families experienced the worst kind of outcome that you could imagine from their pursuit of spiritual life. Right. So I, I wonder, cause I know, you know, Adida is a different personality. Uh, very. So, um, so that's, why I'm just, it's an interesting juxtaposition to be able to talk about both. And also just to, to be able to, again, highlight this idea that there isn't one kind of person who runs a group and one who can be either beneficial in your life or destructive in your life, just like there isn't one kind of person who gets involved in a group like this. It, there's, it is a more complicated picture. With Rama's death, though, just going back to that for a moment, I think there is this, mm, yeah, there's a question about what led him to it and what made him feel so desperate or at the end, he was young, he had so many skills, he had a way with people. So what do you think that was about? Why why do you think he was feeling hopeless at that point? I mean, I think it depends on who you talk to. But I think some people felt that he may have been experiencing some kind of chronic pain. We were able through you know, Freedom of Information Act requests and other ways to get a little bit more clarity on sort of the police report and what had happened the night of his death. To my understanding, he had recently had eye surgery that had left him, I don't know, blind, but definitely like his his vision was was hampered. You know, some students, I guess maybe the ones that sort of believe that there was some metaphysical thing at play, felt that he had sort of died as an act of protest against um, what he felt was being misunderstood by the media in terms of his mission, all of that stuff. It is important to note that as far as corroborating that notion, in the sort of later years, Rama, unlike a group like Adidas, and we can get into comparison there, was not trying to expand the size and the scope of his organization. Adidas very clearly said that he wished to start a religion. Rama had no intention of starting a religion. In fact, there are numerous moments over the course of his life where he sort of purged, in the words of some of the students, kind of purged followers or students, sorry, not they wouldn't refer to them as followers as students. Arida would, you know, was referred to as devotees or followers, but you know, that there would there would be a kind of uh, a letting go of of students. Um, which kind of counters the notion that you would be expanding a group and trying to build a religion. It's very different. It was a different attitude. So it almost, to me, I think, like we were saying earlier, was kind of like chase isn't the right word, but it was almost as if he didn't want to be seen that way. And he also didn't want to build something that was seen that way. That's my my kind of perception of it from talking to people. And so I think some of the students felt that maybe his part of what he was doing in his in his death was a kind of act of protest. It's wild for me to imagine, I will be honest with you, because that is not something that's sort of, that that is, a, there are very rare int- incidences of like Buddhist monks or practitioners committing suicide as an act of protest. There's the very famous self-emulating monk in, in, during the Vietnam War, those iconic photographs. This is n- not necessarily a one-to-one situation in that regard. But it was clear that I think the all the way up until his death, Rama felt misunderstood and that he went to what appeared to be painstaking lengths to adjust the way that he that people were involved with him to sort of react to that. So that's one theory. I mean, the other theory that has been communicated to me was that, you know, because there was that that maybe there was some you know, chemical dependency. He did ingest pills at the time of his death, as far as we understand. That's what it said in the news. You know, I think 
There's probably a whole bunch of things in between there that it could be. And it does seem that like everyone I spoke to had a different theory of what happened. And one thing that sort of stuck out to me and something students did mention to me, a lot of people mentioned to me over over time was was that he had discouraged people from committing suicide over, over many, many years, like would at times say like, people should not commit suicide. That's absolutely not the thing to do. So it's, it's hard to know. It's a mystery. Yeah, it's still shrouded. So Adida, Daffrey John, Franklin Jones, all everyone, everyone all in, all wrapped up in one. I had only worked with one person who was a follower, but many years ago, who said that he was afraid of him, but that he was still a follower. And I, I remember seeing pictures of him that he could have a very intense look, and I think he could be intimidating. But I also know he. He had a very big presence and a big life, wrote lots of books, had lots of kids, had following, you know. Yes, a very different story from Rama. And so I'm wondering what drew your parents to it and also what your experience was like. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I mean, and and I do the 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 series, Dear Franklin Jones, I would really encourage people to go listen to it and you can get a real sense of my my personal experience of 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 growing up with my parents' guru, Harida Franklin Jones. And I think it's important to note that like the way that I approached the Rama series and the way that I approached Dear Franklin Jones are are distinct in that I see Dear Franklin Jones as a kind of audio memoir. It's rooted in my experience as something I lived through. I'm wrestling both with my personal feelings about what happened while also trying to make sense for people about what the the life of the group actually looked like. So there's a lot of personal reflection there. Hard to sum up in a few words, but I I think I was in a unique situation in that I did not choose Adida as my teacher or my guru. My parents chose um, him and I was along for the ride. And there was a period of my life when my parents became increasingly close to Adida that I also tried to embrace the teaching and him as a guru. And I struggled with that very much. So I feel like it took me about eight years to really come around, maybe even longer. I mean, I I guess you could say in some ways, dear Franklin Jones was me processing what had happened. And the motivation to do it was I knew that my wife and I were planning on having a baby and I did not want to be a parent without having looked at what had happened. In terms of my personal feelings about Adi Da, I think you're looking at many people in one as far as the teaching is concerned, right? You're looking at this trajectory from 1972, when he referred to himself as Bubba Free John, brother, your friend. He was this kind of spiritual buddy. You know, he was an enlightened teacher by his by his proclamation, but he was operating in the early years much like a peer. And if you look at that compared to where he ended up, Adida Samraj, the divine world teacher and true heart master for the late time and dark epic, all that stuff, Kali Yuga, it's a totally different human being. And he and you know, his students would tell you that it is like a growing actualization of his own spiritual or divine consciousness. But I struggled with that expansionist impulse within the group and within his doctrine and within him. I remember there was a, and I think it pretty as well summed up and we talk about it in the series, there's a, a speech that he gave in the 1980s called The Baptism of Immortal Happiness. And in that speech, this sort of recorded talk, he says, I know it and you do not. Absolutely. And all miracles are potent in my heart. And I have come here to give you everything. That's exactly word for word. That's what it says. And I remember that line. It still gives me chills when I recite it because I remember being a 15-year-old boy wrestling with the notion that somebody could have this kind of unique and unilateral knowledge whether that knowledge is intellectual or metaphysical, irrespective of that, it was something that was impossible for me to fully embrace in the form of Adida Franklin Jones. And so that was the struggle of my childhood. So (laughs) if you want to know what it was like to be young Jonathan, it was wrestling with versions 
dimensions of that dialectic. Right. So here you're part of the, what we call the SGA, second generation members. And it's a very different experience. Exactly as you said, it's not what you would have chosen for yourself. You were born into it and your family was there. And so that was your life. And that's what you knew. It's hard to leave that. It's hard to sometimes, depending on how much your family was involved and also how, how separate you were from the world and just learning social norms and learning about how to question and that it's okay to question and that someone who is a teacher can also be wrong and that you can be right. And all of that sort of needs to fall into place somehow. Uh, and it's hard to get guidance on that when you first come out. And especially with having a teacher who says, I know, and you do not. Right. So reconciling with what ultimately became for Arida, um, an increasing, I guess you could say over the years, setting aside those who believe this was some form of like true self-expression, that over the years, he became increasingly front and center in his cosmological view. And that, that was something that I couldn't reconcile for myself. And for my parents, I think they saw it slightly differently because they were in search of this very kind of spiritual experience that they recognized in Arida, them receiving these sort of meditation and and what, you know, their beliefs about the transmission of spiritual powers and such. They saw Arida both as a legitimate transmitter of those experiences, but they also... I think, struggled with their own interpersonal relationship with him when they became closer to him. So there's a line from in the, in the series from my dad in which he says, you can be enlightened and still be an asshole. It's something he said a lot. And so that was something my parents held on to for many, many years, was the idea that even though Arida, they felt very hurt by him, they still saw him as this kind of spiritual being. And I didn't have that kind of an experience with him. I didn't have an experience that I could, I should say, singularly isolate as a phenomenologically distinct in that way. So I don't have that sort of comfortable reconciliation of behavior and metaphysics that they were quick to adopt when they left. Oh, he's... He might have done all these things on the behavioral level, but he's this spiritual being. I didn't have any of that to fall back on. So you can imagine how difficult that was. And then also to be reintroduced into a world where you don't... I was part of this group in which like, we literally referred to ourselves as the community and the world. And so now I'm like in college. I didn't grow up watching television or have much of a literacy of pop culture. I read books a lot. I think I'm, I'm grateful that I had that pantheon to go to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I struggled to feel normal. And one of the things I wanted from dear Franklin Jones was a normalizing of this experience, my childhood as a singularly American experience. Whatever that you think of it, it is a byproduct of a very particular time, the era of the crazy wise guys. And so one of my missions is to center that experience for better and for worse um, in the context of the time. And we do that in the series and we did that in Dear Franklin Jones. I should also clarify that like there is a religious, spiritual ideology or philosophy about what's called crazy wise adepts or the Sanskrit word is avadhuts, right? These sort of spiritual teachers who, because of their behavior, challenge you to sort of not react or have attachments to the the human elements of your interactions and focus on your spiritual path. And, and that tradition is sort of marketed in a few sources. There was a book about it by George Fierstein in the 1990s called Holding Madness. It was one of the few where they tried to actually try to put it into some cultural or intellectual canon of sorts. But it, it stretches all the way back to some of the Tibetan teachers in earlier centuries, Strokpa Kunli, the story of Marpa and Milarepa is another one. And then modern spiritual teachers like uh, Ramana Maharshi, Ramakrishna, and then up until the, the present day or the modern era, you could say like Rajneesh. I would put Rama into that category in his own way. Obviously, Adida, Chogyam Trungpa 
is another one. So yeah, I think there is there's like this intellectual sort of a very, I guess you could say, cult argument in a different sense of the term, a niche, a smaller margin argument that people don't get into unless they're weirdos like me and they do deep Googling um, and read a bunch of books on their parents' bookshelf. But like there is this argument sort of that like behavior is a ruse for the spiritual path or for the relationship between the student and, and the teacher. But that's very complicated. And every scenario in which that's played out has been complicated in our era. So I was... I don't know if it's PC to say when you were saying crazy wise guys and I was thinking crazy white guys. Absolutely. And they were mostly white men. And it's important to note, too, that the majority of students of many of these major teachers of that era were white, middle class Americans. So, yes, I mean, I'm not saying they weren't many of them very intelligent and very thoughtful people, but it was not it was not a cross section of American society. Absolutely not. And, you know, doing this work for a long time, just looking at the clients I've had going to conferences. Yes, it is not a cross section. That's a research project, by the way. I mean, it's a place that like in the context of one teacher or another, we can only get into so much. But I absolutely think that part of the story here is the story of the white psyche of the 70s and 80s of the boomer mentality, the white middle class boomer, I should say. Yeah. And some with, you know, expendable income and others were just searching for meaning and grounding and mm, a lot of it. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's very white. It's a very white story. Uh, I do have clients who are not white, but they're really, actually it is small percentage. I find that so interesting. Sometimes people will say, what kind of, they'll ask me, what kind of person is a cult leader? They come in in a lot of different flavors, but there are sort of three main groups that I think about. The one who is, who believes in the delusion, the one who brings people into their psychosis and really does, doesn't have the need to necessarily control, isn't about the money and the popularity, but like the, the leader of Heaven's Gate, who was a believer that the mothership was coming and brought people into that way of thinking because he had certain charisma and had the other woman who uh, ran it also with him, actually, who was his leader for a while. Uh, then there is the one who is the other end of the spectrum where they know what they're doing. They've studied the best. They've studied Mao Zedong. They studied Aaron Hubbard. They've studied Hitler. They've studied, not that I'm putting, putting them on equal footing, but just the people who have started movements where they took control over people's way of thinking. Then there's this middle space of people who start out mm, with a little more innocence to them and transform over time because they realize people listen to everything they say and they like that. Some people don't like it and will, you know, run from it. And maybe Rama was a bit like that. But for Franklin Jones, it could be that it just, mm, he developed this grandiosity that grew over time to kind of a monumental degree. And for people who want to know that they've come into something that really feels good and kind of earthy and real, when they see the leader starting to feel that they're omniscient and omnipotent, they will sometimes go with that because they feel like, oh, this is a natural transition and now we're really following the real guru. And for others, it's very distasteful and hard to just wrap their head around that here they're following someone who doesn't seem to care about them in the same way, but it's much more self-focused and it's quite a disappointment um, for a lot of people. And that's when sometimes people will break off or they'll start their own group. Kind of sometimes there are these splinters because they like the teachings, but they no longer like the person who's teaching them. So that's one part that I wanted to mention. And also just picturing you in school, you know, being in the world and how you do that and how do you you know, say to the person next to you, I have no idea what that reference was. You spent a lot of extra time following, catching up on movies, I think is part of it. I can't really speak to sort of the the mapping of leaders that you noted there. I think I understand sort of where you're coming from. In terms of my own personal experience of having to adjust to the world and reconcile those two visions of the world. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very difficult. It was a process I didn't even realize I was going through for a very long time. It took me even longer to 
appreciate or even to contemplate the aspects of my childhood that were affiliated with that organization that were good. You know, because part of also, I mean, and also part of the heartbreak of doing something like Dear Franklin Jones is that I've effectively ruled all of those people out of my life by doing it. The people I grew up with, many of them were not happy that I was telling a story about their guru. You know, that was tough. That was tough. But I'm grateful for the life I have and and the craft that I have and my family. The one thing I could say about it is that when my parents joined in the mid 80s and they envisioned this utopian world for their child around all of these spiritual aspirants and young people living this kind of idyllic life, I don't think they would have anticipated that it ended the way that it did. Right. That's often the case. And so you have a lot of disillusioned people out there and disappointed people, but still holding on. And it sounds like with your father, even though I don't know your parents at all. And so I, I'm not saying this in a personal way, but just that you quoted him as saying that he learned that basically, you know, someone who is enlightened can also be an asshole. I mean, I think you know, there's some people who would definitely disagree with that. But I psychologically, I see that it's a way of coming up with a formula to have it make sense and to have it be kind of okay that it was a both and situation rather than either or. And I think a lot of people do that so they can be a little more okay with it and understanding of it. And it, it is kind of actually, that's an enlightened way of looking at it, not in a black and white way. Thank you for everything. Thank you for inviting me on. One more thing before you go. Jonathan told such an interesting story today from being raised in one group and then going into another group. It seems unlikely that when someone leaves one group that is kind of culty, then they would get involved in another. I mean, what is the chance of that? Most people think it's actually pretty high. There are many people who are still searching after leaving one group that didn't quite have all the answers or didn't have everything they were looking for. The things they were promised didn't come to fruition. So they do kind of something I call cult shopping without realizing they're doing cult shopping. They're just searching for the next thing that might then hold the truth or the answers or perfection, or whatever it is that they're hoping to be able to acquire and have. When you don't know what to watch out for, you find yourself finding similar things. You find yourself gravitating towards similar personalities who are charismatic, who are all-knowing, who are more than happy to become your new teacher, your new guide, your new everything. You're looking for that kind of communal feeling, people who you feel like you can relate to. So when you do that, when you're gravitating also towards certain personalities, even in relationships, without understanding why the last one, why the last relationship with someone similar didn't quite work out or left you feeling bad about yourself or mm, like you didn't matter, If you know you like a certain personality style, people will say, you know, I went from one narcissist to the next in terms of my partners. I went from one cult to the next. You need to be able to take a moment before looking for someone new or looking for something new to find out what didn't work about the thing that you were involved in or the person you were involved with before. If you don't have that kind of insight, then you're going to find yourself in something similar and then feel kind of beaten down, I think, by that. As some of you know, and I've said this before, there are countless numbers of people out there wanting to take advantage of other people and take advantage of their openness and take advantage of their searching. And there are more cults than I can mention. In the 30 years that I've been doing this work, I can safely say I've heard about a new cult group almost every day. It's funny when people say to me, oh, you know, I think cults went out with the 70s. Well, no, (laughs) they're still around and they will always be. And that's not to make people scared. It's just to make people aware. The world is a very big place and there are many people every day 
who are looking for the answers or who are looking to feel special, who are looking for a whole variety of things. And unfortunately, simultaneously, there are a number of people in this world who are more than willing to say they have the answers, more than willing to say, I will love you in a way that no one else will. I have what you need and you can't find it anywhere else. I can give you what you want that you didn't even know you wanted, but now I've convinced you you want it and need it, and now I can give it to you. But when, again, you don't know what to watch out for, you will get sucked into something else that can be your ticket, your ticket to wealth or health, everlasting life or love or a connection with God. You want to make sure when you know what to watch out for, that you then have the skill to not be distracted by all of the trappings, by the charisma, by the excitement around you. You know not to lower your defenses just because what's happening around you gets you kicked up into fervor or makes you feel suddenly understood and loved to this great degree. You want to understand that all of that is packaging and cults are very unhealthy. That's why we call them cults. But part of the reason that they're really unhealthy is that they will never tell you ahead of time what they truly have in store for you. And sometimes they don't even know ultimately where they're going to be taking you in your life. The leader, the person in charge or that controlling partner just wants to have control. And where they take you, what they teach you, sometimes that's even less important to them than just knowing that you will do whatever they say and you will believe whatever they say. The reason that this matters to me, among other reasons, is that when I hear people get from one thing into the other that's unhealthy, they have this beaten down feeling of their life just being a place where they go from out of the frying pan into the fire, where they get involved with someone who feels just as entitled to take things away from them, who ultimately doesn't really care about them, but who they trusted anyway. And I don't want people to feel hopeless in their life, that they can't get out of this. It just means that you need to read yourself and know that you are drawn to people who give you all the answers. Know that you're drawn to those environments. And so you want to have your antenna fine-tuned to watch out for manipulative tactics. You want to be able to know that if people are not wearing orange robes, they can still be cult leaders. If people are not talking about God, if they're involved in a political group, or they are the heads of the company that you work for, or they're the person you've been dating for a while, there's just as much risk uh, being controlled based on their personalities as if you had gone off to live in a commune somewhere far away with someone who was dangerous and destructive. So again, don't look for the obvious but notice a vibe. Get a sense of being able to kind of check in. When you can check in and say, something just doesn't feel right here, then you can keep yourself safer. But also in equal measure, if you check in and say to yourself, this all seems perfect, this seems too good to be true, then know that it probably is too good to be true. I also know that sometimes people are left not knowing. They don't know, they get a feeling, but you know, they're talked out of having that kind of critical feeling or wondering or doubting because they're told that that's that feeling that's getting in the way of them being able to have a good, happy life or spiritual life. That's the thing that's getting in the way of having this wonderful relationship. So people are kept from having the ability to protect themselves. Controllers handicap people. So if you just get a feeling or you had a feeling and you were convinced to get rid of it, but you still remember there was a red flag there somewhere and you want to be able to check it out, please do. 
go onto websites where people have lists of different groups and articles about different groups to see if that group or that person shows up. Or if you want to be able to be in touch with me, feel free at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Let me know what you're sensing or what you had sensed. And I'm happy to give you my feedback so that we can work together to keep you safer. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.